Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, January 26, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Covering the first few days of the Trump administration has been like calling the Kentucky Derby if none of the horses wore silks. No numbers, no colors, just a bunch of stuff happening. And all the jockeys were seven-eighths versions of Mike Pence. Yesterday was this revelation that Trump's voter fraud idea came from, well, it came from what we call motivated reasoning, but it also came from a golfer. Bernard Langer said that he was online to vote and got kicked off. Guy's German. But then some people didn't look American were allowed to vote. Crazy. Brings up another question, though. What if all of Trump's beliefs came from golfers? Jaina is killing us on trade deals. Jumbo Asaki told me personally he is from the region. Muslims on rooftops. Don't believe me. Davis Love the Third. He said it, and he told Ernie Els, "Don't call Ernie Els a liar." That four hundred pound guy on his bed hacking, not the Russians. Craig Stadler. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give myself some golf claps for some golf humor. There you go. And there on ABC was Trump's first interview. And anchor David Muir trying to normalize the guy, right? He tries to set him up against that White House background. Hey, take me around your house. Let's use the optics of the office of the presidency as only you can for your benefit. This was hardcore normalization tactics. Trump just couldn't make it normal. I can be the most presidential person ever other than possibly the great Abe Lincoln. All right. But I can be the most presidential person. But... I may not be able to do the job nearly as well if I do that. So wait, he could be more presidential than George Washington, a man who is somewhat associated with the presidency. So if he wanted to be, he could out-president George Washington, but that would get in the way. It would hurt America were he to be equally or even exceedingly presidential as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Roosevelt, either one. One day you'll thank him for not being that presidential. And then my favorite sentiment, the world is a mess. The world is as angry as it gets. Well, you think this is going to cause a little more anger? The world is an angry place. I know. Mark Kalkovecchia did the polling. On the show today, I spiel about a government that is nefarious and unethical. And happily, there's about a 98% chance that it's not your government. Offer does not apply to residents of Sioux Falls and Deadwood. 
But first, he had the ear of every prominent Democratic politician of the last decade. Yale professor Jacob Hacker looks at the idea of government being the problem, and he has some solutions to that misguided notion. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Americans hate regulation, and yet if you told them, hey, the cook at this restaurant has a habit of peeing in the soup, they would say there ought to be a law against that. And beyond the low-hanging fruit of demanding that your appetizers not contain urine unless the recipes explicitly call for urine, Americans very much like, indeed need, good laws. Yale political scientist Jacob Hacker runs Yale's Institution for Social and Policy Studies. He's advised Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Uh, His new book, along with UC Berkeley's Paul Pearson, is American Abnormal. How the Warren government led us to forget what made America prosper. Hello, Jacob. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. So I want to uh, just give you the chance right now because we want to go far afield, but lay out the predicate, if you will, of the book. Yeah, the predicate's pretty simple. It's stated right up front uh, that you need uh, a lot of government, effective government, uh, to have a well-functioning society. We show that the United States is not an exception to this rule. In fact, all rich countries figured out how to use government more effectively in the 20th century to promote prosperity, broadly conceived. So health care, income, all of that um, really was based on more effective public policies. So we really are trying to make the case, not for using government indiscriminately, but for using it well where it's needed. And uh, unfortunately, we're not doing that. Right. So the, uh, that the idea of good laws rather than bad laws is at all controversial, is an odd thing and an odd aspect of American political life. Now, Reagan himself, who was famous for the coinage that government isn't the solution, it's the problem, eventually backed off from that. And as I look at it, it does seem to me that railing against regulation is a rhetorical thing to say. And yet, you know, it seems more than not to be a cover for not being against regulation per se, but a cover for let's enact policies to enrich a certain class of people. (laughs) Well, and that can often involve being against regulation. I mean, there's lots of ways to undermine regulation. Yeah, but all the people against regulation are, not all all the people, I would say almost all the people are in favor of, say, tort reform, which is a form of regulation. Right. I think it's absolutely the case that people are very inconsistent when they talk about regulation. So on the the one hand, people say, I hate regulation, it's a burden on business. And on the other hand, as you were saying at the outset, most people support most of the most effective regulations we have, including the ones that have given us such wonders as clean air and water. And a lot of the attacks on regulation are either ideological and sort of broad-based, or, and I think this is the norm, they're driven by private self-interest. And there are a lot of uh, businesses that benefit from weakly regulated uh, markets. So financial deregulation and the failure to update financial regulations was very good for Wall Street, but it turned out not to be very good uh, for our economy. And the debate over climate change is is sort of a debate over the most 
you know, egregious uh, market failure the world has ever seen, namely that if you produce energy or consume energy, you're spewing carbon into the atmosphere, which is increasing our world's temperatures and threatening our planet. And you really need to figure out a way to either put limits on those emissions or make people pay their cost to society. I've rethought my position on this, meaning I totally agree with everything you say and everything I said in the intro, that it's silly to be against regulation. But I used to think that I, as a public intellectual, though less public and certainly less intellectual than you, my job was to argue against the idea. But I've come to think that talking about regulation is pretty close to a dog whistle in that, in that just like it, do, it doesn't even pay to have the debate on regulation because, or deregulation because the people who say they're in favor of it, what they're really saying is we want to help our friends in the coal industry or what people respond to it are saying is I'm in the coal industry or I hate these goddamn environmentalists. I just don't like the cut of their jib. So I don't even know how important it is to argue against this point. Well, I think it is important to make people aware of the enormous number of ways in which our society is richer and healthier because of regulation. So in the book, we point out that the Clean Air Act passed under Richard Nixon, I should note, um, and its successor uh, pieces of legislation, most notably the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments passed under George H.W. Bush, uh, added probably two years of life expectancy uh, to the typical American born uh, in the period since we've improved air quality. So that's a big deal, right? I agree with you. But what I've changed is I, I, I question how important it is to have the meta conversation. I mean, just in terms of winning elections, when you ask people individually, well, what do you think of this particular uh, regulation, particulates in the air or um, rat hair in your frankfurter? They always want regulation. It just become this cover for I don't have a good argument for why I'm uh, enacting these policies for my friends in industry. But I'll say deregulation and it's multisyllabic and the average voter to them, it might evoke, you know, paying your taxes. And so I could get away with what I want to do. That's, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that holds across a bunch of policy areas. When people talk about government uh, in the, you know, as this horrible overweening force, then you can get people ginned up pretty quickly. Um, but when you start to ask them about specific things that government does, whether it's the kinds of regulatory policies we've been talking about or such valuable programs as Social Security and Medicare, people start to be a lot more appreciative of, of what government does. And so that's I mean, one of the messages of our book is that a big part of what government does is, um, is not redistribution, which is kind of the, the hot button that, that both the left and the right likes to talk about, right? So there are definitely programs that involve explicit redistribution from usually, uh, but not always, uh, from the more affluent to the less affluent. But a lot of the fundamental things that government does that we sort of take for granted, like investing in education and research and development and building roads and cleaning up our air and water, um, are not really that much about redistribution. They're basically about uh, making all of us better off, or as George W. Bush memorably put it, um, making the pie higher. So a lot of a lot of what government does is about making the pie higher, and and um, and that's why you're absolutely right. If you're trying to get people upset, uh, and people are really upset, they're upset about government, and I think in particular they're upset about our politics. Um, if you're trying to get people upset, you don't want to talk about those specific things. You want to talk about government in the abstract as this kind of malevolent force in their lives. Um, and uh, the challenge I think for those like 
me, and it sounds like you, who think there's a lot of these vital ways in which government makes us richer, is to figure out how to talk about it in a way that counters some of these general negative views, you know, and isn't getting into the policy weeds. And if I had a solution to that challenge, I think um, I would have probably written a book with a much longer <laughs> concluding chapter than but we Bernie, did. But Bernie didn't have that problem. He said $15 minimum wage. He said... Well, absolutely. Yeah. And he didn't have that problem. And the reviewer for The Times said that our book was, if our, if our book was a candidate, it would be Bernie Sanders. But I would note, for progressives, people who really want to regain control of this debate, it's not going to be a a single election fight, right? It's going to be a long-term fight because, as we point out in the book, the other side uh, has spent years um, investing in crafting a message that really, you know, gins people up about how, uh, how terrible government is. And although, as I said, a lot of Americans actually like a lot of the things that government does concretely, this imbalanced debate, it seems to me, is makes it really hard for those who um, recognize the, the limits of that view to win fights. Are private labor unions ever going to make a comeback in America? I think that we will see a rebirth of, I'll put this broadly, the labor movement in the next 15 to 20 years. And that may seem like, a, like really whistling uh, past the graveyard, but I'll explain what I mean. I mean, I think the current system of unionization and the, and the formal kind of private sector labor union as it's um, currently structured, that is not a viable model for the 21st century because the whole structure of the National Labor Relations Board structure has uh, essentially collapsed, and employers are so hostile to traditional union drives. That said, what we've seen in Fight for 15, um, the fight of fast food workers and other low-wage workers for a $15 pay, and the victory across the country, including in red states, of minimum wage increases and other labor protections, suggests to me that we are seeing the, uh, the formation of a, of a broader form of labor organizing that actually could, I think, win important gains for workers. And in a sense, right, we're seeing a, a movement toward a, a somewhat more diffuse and more platform-oriented uh, labor model. So platform-oriented means, look, at this point, as we've seen Uber rise and we've seen other kinds of applications for work where people are basically very decentralized, have risen, we need to move the labor movement in the similar direction where people can organize through these platforms that are available across a whole bunch of different kinds of workplaces. And that combination of kind of social movement organizing and what's sometimes called alt-labor organizing through digital communications and technology, that I think has enormous promise um, for bringing back some forms of representation for workers. Oh, yeah. Listen, I'm for the fight for 15 and the thumbs up on Facebook. But forget alt labor for a second. Paleo labor existed because they were able to take some dues from the wages they gained. Without that, can the fight for 15 be anything with real teeth? Well, you know as well as I do that perhaps the biggest issue that was put in limbo by Scalia's death on the Supreme Court was whether or not you could have mandatory union dues for public sector workers. I see that as deeply endangered, but I do think that there are ways in which you could substitute for the kinds of due structure that unions have traditionally relied upon, um, much more of a kind of small donor model um, of the sort that we're seeing in campaigns like Bernie Sanders campaign, namely lots of people being involved with somewhat less thick and institutionally dense um, labor organizations and contributing to them. But look, 
I am not <laughs> trying to suggest that this is a natural or inevitable outcome. I think the next few years are going to be extremely tough. And uh, I've been quoted as saying that they're facing, you know, an existential threat. Uh, labor movements are facing an existential threat. But I do think if there's a silver lining to this cloud for labor is that there's no way to argue that you can resurrect the uh, existing model. And that gives me some greater hope that there will be innovative thinking about how to um, provide some of the benefits of labor unions without necessarily employing all of the, the forms that were part of the 20, 20th century labor movement. Jacob Hacker runs Yale's Institution for Social and Policy Studies, which is really a broad brief. <laughs> we can like, pretty much do anything we want yeah, here. It's like so. the Jeopardy category history. Just yes, everything exactly. before now. Right. He's also the author of American Amnesia, How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now the spiel. Have you heard? Have you heard the story of governance being at odds with the people's will of a Republican-controlled legislature, of a political fight so fraught that it's claiming victims? I speak, of course, of South Dakota ethics reform. So this past November, the voters of South Dakota passed a ballot measure intending to reform, to some degree, the political process. They would cap donations to state offices. They would limit lobbyists' gifts. And it had this really cool part where every voter would get an account where they had two $50 credits to give to any candidate. So it was public financing, but on a citizen level. Now, wait, did I say it was a really cool idea? No, really not cool. Because this week and last week, the South Dakota legislature ripped into the measure. A judge called it unconstitutional, said parts of it were still worth saving, but elected officials disagreed with that part of his ruling. These were officials, elected officials, elected under rules, without cap donations or some crazy credit, and they all said, hell no. Now, unless you think ethics are dry, and maybe even ethics in South Dakota are more dry than usual, and I have no idea why you would think that, I would like to point out that beyond public financing and lobbying reform, South Dakota ethics is tied to a strong strain of murder and sex. Yes, murder and sex. So last year, a South Dakota couple who stole a million dollars or so in state funds intended to help Native Americans become college ready. They were found dead in their homes. Their children were also burned to death. The husband set the house on fire, then shot himself with a shotgun ruled a murder-suicide. So in the wake of this terrible event, state Democrats said, let us form an ethics commission. There was a lot of unethical stuff going on with this whole incident. And they renewed the call to investigate how the state could have let this go on for so long. A couple years earlier, the former economic development secretary of South Dakota, a guy named Richard Bender, committed suicide 
right before he was about to be indicted on charges that he essentially sold visas to businesses. Again, there were calls, maybe we should have an ethics commission. There's a lot of unethical things going on in government. This guy was a former member of the governor's cabinet, and even the attorney general's investigation into the suicide proved inadequate to some critics. They said if there was an ethics commission, an independent commission, that might solve some of our problems, get to the bottom of some of these things, maybe rise South Dakota up from its current ranking as 47th in accountability, according to the Center for Public Integrity. But the Republican-controlled Senate this week defeated a bunch of different ethics reforms, and it looks like the entire ethics bill is going down. A mic, mic, hello, what about the sex? You promised me the sex, sex and murder, right? So, Two weeks ago, South Dakota lawmakers blocked a proposed rule that would have banned sexual contact between legislators and their interns and pages. I got me a quote from a South Dakota legislator who voted against it. Quote, I'm hesitant to pass anything, lest this become a criminal code rather than a code of ethics. And that was said by Rapid City Republican David Lust. Okay, so two weeks ago, the no sex with interns rule goes down. Last week... South Dakota Republican Matthew Wolman resigns. What'd he do? He admitted to having sex with interns. When Representative Matthew Wolman was sworn into office in 2015, he was the state's youngest legislator. When I was out here, the people I connected with the most were the interns. So uh, when we went out, uh, had drinks uh, together, um, communicated together because we're both in college at the same time. After two years of these personal interactions with interns, rumors began to fly. I have heard of these rumors going around, and I'm uh, glad to have the opportunity to really uh, tell my side. And I actually, I feel uh, 100% better uh, getting it out there. Hey, they were 21, I'm only 25, yet he did have sex with interns. Now let me remind you of that illustrious lust quote. I'm hesitant to pass anything, lest this become a criminal code rather than a code of ethics. And right now, the full Senate is about to vote down that very code of ethics. How do I know this? The Senate has 35 members. 29 of them are Republicans. The law voting down the ethics code has 27 sponsors. But the vote was delayed today, so maybe there is a chance for South Dakota ethics. But maybe not. It is a fascinating place, the capital, Peer. People think it's Pierre, but no, when you've been there, as I have for a few days, it's Pierre. The senators, they don't have offices. They just, a couple of the big ones, the leaders do, but most of them don't. They just operate from desks on the floor. They put their papers there and the desks open up like in an elementary school. Seriously, the legislature is in session for 38 days a year. Why? So everyone can get back to farming. It's very close to direct democracy. It's very hands-on. Just ask the interns. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube, not that into South Dakota ethics, more into the Prince Edward Island Standing Committee on Agriculture and Fisheries. Just producer Mary Wilson is captivated by waterway navigability in the Santiago Lerma River Basin. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's also something of an aficionado on fraud and malfeasance in railroad hiring practices. And Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network, only because he couldn't get the job overseeing regional sustainability in Upper Arlington, Ohio. The gist is my show, but my passion 
is animal husbandry in the Wheeling, West Virginia metropolitan statistical area, including Belmont County, Ohio. Oom um, peru de peru du peru, and thanks for listening.